Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube with video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show. This is your threat intel briefing for the week of July 17th, 2022 through July 23rd. 2022. I'm your host, John Good. If you enjoy this content, make sure that you leave a like on this video and that you hit the subscribe button and the bell icon so you don't miss future content. And if you're listening on a podcasting platform, also make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. With that, let's go ahead and dive into the articles. So the first article that we have was Hive Ransomware Decryption Key Released As Gang Evolves Its Tactics. A decryption key for malware deployed by the ransomware gang Hive has been released in response to an uptick in activity from the gang in the past three months. Hive has also switched to a more complex coding language called Rust, which is harder to decrypt, making the key even more valuable. So if you're not sure what uh, ransomware is or if you're not familiar with it, basically the idea is that this stuff just starts encrypting all of your data on your computer And then that way you can't actually access the information and it will pop up like a splash screen or a pop-up that says you need to pay this X, you know, X amount, uh, usually in Bitcoin or some kind of cryptocurrency to whichever ransomware group it is. And then they will give you a decryption key. So that's kind of the idea with it. And this decryption uh, tool for version five of Hive's malware has been released by a malware analyst and reverse engineer publicly known as RecDeep. So it's somebody that's releasing a tool and not necessarily this group. And the key can be found on GitHub, which was uh, created in order to try and quell recent mounting attacks by the gang. So kind of to fight the the gang, right? Speaking to Tech Monitor, RecDeep said the nature of Hive's attacks meant that they felt inspired to build the key and make it publicly available. Dozens of companies stopped doing business because of gangs of criminals. Hospitals are affected by disruption and are unable to provide care to their patients, they said. And so basically what's happening is with this ransomware, it will go and hit a company, right? And then they can't do anything unless they pay the ransom or, you know, they just go out of business because they can't generate the money. And we're seeing this in all kinds of different companies. Just like this says, we see it in hospitals. We see it in online businesses. We see it in governments, right? There was some recent cases or relatively recent cases of like the Costa Rican government where they were having a lot of this happen. And this person is kind of fighting back, right? It's great to see somebody that is, you know, they've just had enough and they're like, no, we're going to create a decryption tool and we're just going to put it out there. So, and they put it out on GitHub. So uh, it's very interesting to see. This is kind of the, the first incident or the first situation where we're seeing a decryption tool really put out there uh, just to you know kind of fight off the gangs. So pretty interesting. And then also too, kind of as we're going through these articles, there is going to be a uh, link in the show, uh, a show notes link in the description. So check that out. That will have all these articles that you'll need to uh, need to see if you want to see a specific one that we're covering. So definitely check that out. Uh, next article, Lending Tree denies connection to data breach affecting 200,000, but confirms a different one. The financial services giant lending tree has denied any connection to a reported data breach involving 200,000 loan applications found on the dark web. 
Although the company did confirm that the information of tens of thousands of customers was exposed in a separate uh, data breach in February. Uh, Lending Tree's director of communications, Megan Grueling, told the record that the notifications the co- uh, company sent out were in response to a code vulnerability in Lending Tree's platform that exposed the sensitive information of more than 70,000 customers in February. The information included names, social security numbers, addresses, and dates of birth. Grueling added that the company also notified 700 customers in January of a data breach that took place in November, which also occurred because of the vulnerability in one of the online interfaces for personal loans, which she said no longer exists. So just the whole idea of, you know, data leaks and data breaches in general and access to customers' data. You know, there are different requirements for different industries in different countries as far as things that you should do, uh, when you have to actually notify people and how many people have to be affected for you to notify them. All this stuff exists, right? And 200,000, you know, people, 70,000 people, whatever, that's a substantial amount, right? And, you know, definitely with different industries, something like Lending Tree, right, where they are lending money or a mortgage company or healthcare information, right? When you're getting that more sensitive information, the impact of that information or that customer's data being accessed or being exfiltrated from your company's, you know, infrastructure is dramatically more important in those kind of industries. When you're talking about some, you know, minimal online business where they don't take payments or something like that, you know, obviously there's a certain amount of impact there, but if you're taking in social security numbers and uh, dates of birth, addresses, like all this stuff, this stuff can be used for identity theft. And I think once you kind of elevate to that specific situation or that magnitude, you know, the, the risk is a lot higher and those companies need to be held at a little bit more scrutiny than other companies. It's just how it is, right? There's just way more impact to people and the customers. Next article, the U.S. military wants to understand the most important software on earth. Open source code runs on every computer, uh, every computer on the planet and keeps America's critical infrastructure going. DARPA is worried about how well it can be trusted. So if you're not familiar with what DARPA is, it's basically a, uh, an agency, a research agency here in the United States. But um, say Linux is used in a lot of places, but the kernel is also open source, meaning that people can read, write, and use its code. And that's got cybersecurity experts inside the U.S. military seriously worried. Its open source nature means that the Linux kernel, along with a host of other pieces of critical open source software, is exposed to hostile manipulation in ways that we can barely understand. So if you're not familiar with what open source code is, basically it's the idea of crowdsourcing development for code, right? So an application, in this case, we're talking about Linux, but you're getting people that are out in the world that can contribute to this stuff. And when you have people that can contribute to code, you know, in general, from a lot of different aspects, there's different motives, right? Like I can be in some, uh, some communist kind of country and I can contribute code that is actually malicious, right? Or I can just be in like the United States and I can contribute malicious code to Linux or to something that is, you know, used by a lot of places or a lot of companies, a lot of people, right? Since people now are realizing now, uh, wait a minute, literally everything that we do is underpinned by Linux. 
says Dave Attell, a cybersecurity researcher and former NSA computer security scientist. This is a core technology to our society. Not understanding kernel security means that we can't secure our critical infrastructure. So critical infrastructure would be like uh, power grids or uh, oil pipelines or anything like that, right? Something that is very crucial to protect. But also, you know, with Linux in general, we see things like Internet of Things devices, like Nest thermostats, and all these kind of devices that are using Linux, you know, some flavor or variant of Linux. And, you know, I mean, yeah, like you have to understand what kind of code is in there and what it does. And we've seen a big shift just in general, focusing on supply chain, right? So what kind of software am I using in my company? What kind of software do my suppliers use that they are embedding into software or products that I'm getting from them, right? And so, you know, really focusing on what kind of code, especially with open source software, right? There's always this debate of open source software versus proprietary software and or closed soft, uh, source software and which one's better. And, you know, that, that's a whole debate on its own. But if you're using open source software, you have to understand what's in there. You can't just blanketly uh, accept or blanketly use or blanketly include software that you get from some other random source. You have to do some analysis here. So this, this might be an interesting kind of evolution uh, the more that Linux is looked at, right? So very interesting. Microsoft changes its policy against the sale of open source software in the Microsoft Store. So you know, another focus on open source software. Having previously upset software developers by implementing a ban on sale of open source software in its app store, Microsoft has reversed its decision. The company says that it listened to feedback, which has voc uh, was vocal and negative, and has updated the Microsoft Store policies, removing references to open source pricing. Microsoft has also clarified that uh, just why it put the ban in. In a series of tweets announcing the latest policy changes that removes this ban, Microsoft's uh, Giorgio Sardo says the pol previous policy was intended to help protect customers from misleading product listings. So specifically with stores like this, the Microsoft Store, the Google Play Store, the uh, uh, Apple App Store, you know, the applications that are in there we are relying to a certain extent on these publishers, these uh, not only the people that uh, have the store, that put the store up there, so the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, but we also rely a little bit on the developers that are creating the software, right? So it's kind of this whole process, this whole uh, environment that we're putting some faith into that there's not going to be malicious software. There's going to be software that um, you know, does what it says it's going to do. So I can't necessarily fault uh, a company like Microsoft for trying to, you know, to some extent trying to vet the so these software applications and this code that's out there because, you know, Apple's done this for a while, right? They are very strict with what kind of applications go into the App Store and what's allowed. And we see this, you know, with Microsoft where they're kind of backing off of that policy. And... You know, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens with this. Um, you know, I I think it's going to be interesting just in the grand scheme of things. Again, with like DARPA looking at Linux and open source software, I think that 
um, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on that kind of software because, again, we also see that um, that there are developers out there that are self-sabotaging software if they don't believe in the cause that um, you know that somebody's using a certain piece of software and they they just hate that company or whatever and they self-sabotage their own software. You know that that's a serious concern. Um, and open source software ends up in a lot of places. And you have to really be careful in that supply chain with what you're bringing in if you're a company, right? If you're in a security position where you're in charge of uh, allowing software or approving software, you know, this is something to focus on because maybe it's not worth the risk of allowing some of this open source software to come in. Maybe it is. Maybe the business decision makes sense, right? But um, I I would track this. This is going to be an interesting debate you know, going forward for security professionals. Uh, let's see here. Next article, TikTok's chief security officer to step down. TikTok's chief security officer will step back from that role in September. The company said on Friday of last week in a move that uh, the company, uh, move the company said wasn't related to widening concerns in Washington over the security risks posed by the popular short video app. So if you're not familiar with what's been going on, Basically, there's this whole concern with TikTok and their involvement with China and, you know, where that data really is ending up, right? And that's because they've had relationships with a parent company that, you know, has Chinese ties, right? And so there's just been a lot of speculation and a lot of concern around TikTok specifically. Rolling uh, Cloutier global chief security officer for the video sharing app owned by Beijing-based ByteDance LTD, and again, that's what I was referring to, will stay on as a strategic advisor focused on the business impact of security programs, the company said. He will be replaced by an interim, uh, on an interim basis by Kim Alberera, currently TikTok's global head of security risk vendor and client assurance. TikTok CEO uh, Zhao Si Chu, I'm not sure if I pronounced that exactly right, but sent a note to employees Friday announcing the move, a company spokeswoman said. Part of our evolving approach has been to minimize concerns about the security of user data in the U.S., including the creation of a new department to manage U.S. user data for TikTok, the note said. This is an important investment in our data protection practices, and it also changes the scope of the global CSO role. With this in mind, Roland has decided to step back from his day-to-day operations. So. You know, again, there's been a lot of controversy with TikTok in particular uh, as far as where the data is being stored, who has access to the data, you know, are you giving data to China, right? And um, it's interesting when you see some large shifts like this, right? Like a prominent figure uh, kind of stepping back from their role or no longer going to be in their role. You know, some of the things that come to mind in my mind are was this person, uh, maybe this person was more, uh, more focused on that actual mission, right? Like to either not give data to China, or maybe they were very focused on that mission of giving data to China. It's very hard to tell, especially if you're not on the inside and you're not in that room where some of these discussions are happening. But, um, I think this is not going away. I think TikTok is going to continue to be under scrutiny. And uh, the public announcements are not always the, uh, you know, 
that doesn't always indicate what is actually going on behind the scenes, right? They could just be really focusing on trying to make it more suspicious, you know, <laughs> but um, I mean, we'll see, but TikTok is not, they're not going to just get out of the, the, uh, the spotlight just because they are kind of changing the structure or the hierarchy in their organization. I think there's still going to always be questions, especially when your parent company is uh, headquartered in another country. And especially like with the U S like if you're, you know, or any country, right? Like if the headquarters, the uh, main parent company is headquartered in a different country other than where it's operating, it's always going to be of concern. It doesn't matter if, you know, if you're in China and the headquarters in the U S right? Like it doesn't matter because it's just, it's different governing laws and there's different, um, there's different things in play when you have that kind of situation. So that's, you know, absolutely something to be concerned of when you're in your company that you work in, or if you switch companies or whatever, you know, where is your headquarters? Because every uh, company is going to be at the mercy of those laws and regulations of where they operate, right? So parent company is in wherever, they're going to be subject to those regulations. In a lot of cases, even if it's an offshoot uh, entity, uh, of your comp, uh, of your company. Right. So it's, it's not going anywhere. So, uh, next article, Pegasus spyware used to hack devices of pro democracy activists in Thailand. The activists involved in the country's pro democracy protests have had their, uh, smartphones infected with NSO groups, infamous Pegasus government sponsored uh, spyware. If you're not familiar with what Pegasus is, it is a spyware uh, developed at, out of Israel. Uh, we've talked a lot about it in previous episodes. So in this particular episode, we're not going to dive deep into it. But um, there has been some recent um, recent events where L3 Harris was in talks to try to acquire that. L3 Harris is a government contractor here in the United States. So go back to the previous episodes if you want to uh, learn more about that. But uh, at least 30 individuals Spanning activists, academics, lawyers, and NGO workers are believed to have been targeted between October 2020 and November 2021, so relatively recently, many of whom who have previously been detained, arrested, and imprisoned for their political activities or criticism of the government. The timing of the infections is highly relevant to specific political events in Thailand, as well as specific actions by the Thai justice system, the Citizen Lab said in a uh, report on Sunday. So last, last Sunday, in many cases, for example, infections occurred slightly before protests and other political activities by the victims. So they are proactively identifying some of the stuff that's going to happen. And then they're going after them before it happens. So, you know, the, the spyware and stuff like this in general is always under a lot of scrutiny. Pegasus specifically is always under a lot of scrutiny. And, you know, again, we keep seeing Pegasus come up. This is like the third or fourth week, at least, that we've seen articles coming up about it. But, you know, it, it's been going on for a while. This is not brand new information. And uh, again, I don't think that we're going to see this go away. I think we're going to continue to see spyware and specifically Pegasus uh, in the news. But, you know, this is very interesting that they're going after, after uh, pro-democracy activists, especially in like Thailand, right? Like it's who uh 
who do we think is running the software, right? Because a lot of places have Pegasus software. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to go after people that, uh, especially pro-democracy uh, activists, right? So we're going to keep seeing articles about this for sure. Security flaws in a popular GPS tracking uh, tracker are exposing a million vehicle locations. Security vulnerabilities in a, a popular Chinese-built GPS vehicle tracker can be easily exploited to track and remotely cut the engines of at least a million vehicles around the world, according to research. Worse, the company that makes the GPS trackers had no uh, made, had, they've made no effort to fix them. Cybersecurity startup BitSight said it found six vulnerabilities in the MV720 a hardwired GPS tracker built by uh, Mikotis, a a Shenzhen-based electronics maker, which claims more than 1.5 million GPS trackers in use today across more than uh, 420,000 customers worldwide, including companies with fleets of vehicles, law enforcement agencies, militaries, and national governments. So the ability to track anybody is you know, obviously really dangerous in a lot of situations. This is kind of, you know, next level, right? Think of, think of those, uh, those TV shows and things like that, where you saw like uh, breaking bad, where you had to put a GPS tracker into the wheel well of a car in order to track them. You don't have to do that anymore. Apparently this company is making a GPS tracker that's vulnerable all on its own. And that can just be tapped into and, you know, you can be tracked, right? So I don't even have to go to your car to, to do that, right? Like I just have to get access to this GPS tracker and this system, and then I can, you know, track you without even walking up to your car. Like that's crazy, right? And uh, one of the things that we see a lot is with car makers in general and the components that go into cars, we don't see a ton of security go into those components. And obviously, you know, there's a cost, uh, cost balancing act here, right? Do you want to put a ton of security? And make it super expensive? Do you want to make it super inexpensive and not have any security? So it's kind of a balancing act. But I think especially with things like GPS trackers, you know, I, I'm not as concerned with like a radio or something like that uh, or Bluetooth, you know, in certain circumstances, if I'm like right there, I'm very concerned with things like GPS that can be accessed very far away, right? Like if I can be on the other side of the globe and I can get into your GPS tracking unit, that's an issue, especially when it says fleet, uh, companies with fleets of vehicles, law enforcement agencies, militaries, national governments. That's a serious issue, right? Because you're talking about most likely highly prominent figures or very important figures, right? That typically, you know, it's really bad when they get targeted. And, um, you know, so I... Be careful if you have a GPS tracker in your car. Make sure that you don't have one of these that's really vulnerable because apparently they're not doing too much to to secure it. So dangerous. Uh, U.S. disrupts North Korean hackers that targeted uh, hospitals. The FBI and Justice Department recently disrupted the activities of a hacking group that was sponsored by the North Korean government and that targeted U.S. hospitals with ransomware, ultimately recovering half a million dollars in ransom payments. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said on Tuesday. Monaco revealed how uh, new details of the attacks during a speech in which she encouraged uh, organizations hit by ransomware to report the crime to law enforcement, both so that officials can investigate 
and so that they can help victim companies try to get ransom payments back. The answer is that if you report the attack, if uh, the answer is that if you report the attack, if you report the ransom demand and payment, if you work with the FBI, we can take action. Monaco said at a speech at Fordham uh, Law School, we can follow the money and get it back. We can help prevent the next attack, the next victim, and we can hold cyber criminals accountable. So a lot of important information in here, right? Uh, money can absolutely be tracked, especially, you know, I'm, you might not think it's possible, but a lot of these Bitcoin wallets and things like that, you can see these transactions. And this would not be the first case of being able to attribute or track down a cyber criminal based on their wallet or their transaction information, right? That happens. Um, we also see, you know, targeting U.S. hospitals, right? especially with like nation states, but just attackers in general, threat actors in general, you know, there's usually a specific motive of why you would go after a certain industry or a certain kind of company, a certain target, right? And, you know, nation states, a lot of times we see countries going after specific industries or sectors that would cause a lot of uh, issues, right? So hospitals, you know, we're trying to keep people alive. We're trying to keep people on ventilators, do all this stuff. And if you're going after those organizations with ransomware and you're shutting those organizations down, that obviously presents a very, you know, a very significant issue. Other industries, you know, critical infrastructure, banking, right? If we can't pay, pay people, if we can't pay other countries, um, you know, there, there are just so many examples of that where it could cause a lot of heartache. Uh, the power grid, right? A couple weeks ago, I had, uh, or about a month ago now, I had uh, Gabriel on from Struggle Security, and we did an interview there. He works with, you know, the power grids and securing these things. But, you know, all these kind of sensitive infrastructures, you know, they are really becoming very entwined and very connected. And we have to be very good at securing these types of sectors or these industries because, you know, one attack that shuts down the power grid or, you know, a large hospital system, that's going to cause nightmares as far as really protecting uh, people, you know, in the, in the country uh, and across the world, right? So it's very, very dangerous, very, very important that we you know, protect those organizations. Air gap systems leak data via SATA cable, Wi-Fi antennas. A security researcher has found a new way to steal data from air gap systems by using serial ATA or SATA cables present inside most computers as a wireless antenna that sends out data via radio signals. So if you're not familiar with air gap systems and what they are, it's basically a system that is physically isolated from other systems. So instead of me having a switch where I just block traffic, uh, you know, it's connected to the internet, instead of blocking traffic from this specific network out that switch onto the internet, but other systems that are hooked into that switch can access the internet. This is physically separated. So that switch that I have this other, this network connected to, this is not even connected to something that somewhere down the chain connects to the internet. So that's what an air gap system is. Typically you see this in really secure environments, things like uh, nuclear development programs, military, uh, you know, highly sensitive kind of areas. So dubbed uh, SATA-N, the attack was discovered by uh, Mordachi Guru, Guri, 
the head of R&D of the Cybersecurity Research Labs at Ben Gurion University in Israel and could theoretically help an adversary steal sensitive information. Process basically works like this. So attackers infect the a victim system. So think like Stuxnet, where if you're not familiar with, this, with what uh, Stuxnet is, look it up. But you know the idea of like maybe you drop a flash drive and somebody plugs it into one of these air gap systems, right? Somehow you get that, that malware inside on the inside. Uh, in the test, a reach, researcher was able to use electromagnetic signals with a specific frequency that they list in the article to deliver the word secret. Okay, so they were able to deliver text uh, labeled secret. The researcher also has determined that the distance limitation is 3.9 feet or 120, uh, 120 centimeters. So that's a pretty small, you know, um, distance, right? You have to be within four feet basically to actually um, get it to work. And there's, you know, some issues once you start going past that, that distance. So, you know, you still have to be very, very close to the actual system in order to do this, even if you get that system infected. But, you know, that's still some serious issues, right? Like if somebody can physically infiltrate the system and they can pull off this attack, you know, they can still do some damage. They can walk in with a laptop be four feet away or, you know, within 3.9 feet away, they can send a command to, uh, you know, send a turbine or something, you know, at super high speeds where it causes it to basically explode or catch on fire or something, right? Like whatever the, the end result is. But, um, you know, you don't have to physically log onto that system. You can just be 3.9 feet away and send the radio waves through this uh, SATA N uh, attack. So that's a very interesting emerging kind of attack. You know, if they could get that much further, that would be even more significant of an issue, right? Like if I could get that, let's say 90 feet or, you know, a thousand feet, that'd be crazy, right? Because then maybe I don't even have to be in the building or something. And we're starting to talk about like cell phone signals or, you know, using those networks. So this is going to be a very interesting one to, uh, to track and see uh, as that theoretical limit of distance, as that's pushed, you know, can, can I install a different SATA cable and then uh, get a higher connection uh, distance, right? So all that stuff matters. And uh, I would, you know, be very, very interested to see uh, kind of as that, you know, evolves if that's going to be something that can be a very, very serious, uh, serious issue from a longer distance, right? So very interesting. Uh, and then Facebook is now encrypting links to prevent URL stripping. So some sites, some websites, including like Facebook, they add parameters to their website for tracking purposes. So, you know, I log into a website, I go access this page or whatever, and then this um, this parameter or this tracking code, this cookie gets added. And these parameters basically have no function that's relevant to you as the user, right? It's all backend stuff and it kind of, it, it tracks you, right? That's what the idea is. So browsers like Firefox include support for URL strippers in private browsing mode. But this is where it gets interesting and the whole idea of tracking people, right? Facebook has responded by encrypting the entire URL into a single ciphertext blob, okay? So instead of you being able to access certain parts of the URL or the URL in general, 
they're going to encrypt that information on the back end. So this starts to really, you know, bring up issues like uh, GDPR, right? And some of these uh, requirements as far as privacy and how you're tracked on a specific website. If you are encrypting the entire URL, how do I necessarily know what information that you're, you know, tracking that you are storing, right? Um, in the U.S., we don't see necessarily as stringent or strict requirements as far as tracking and privacy, especially with like, you know, websites like Facebook and stuff like that, that you see in Europe with GDPR and all this other stuff. But, um, you know, I feel like it's a constant, uh, it's a constant battle, right? Like we get really good at putting regulations in place and then websites like Facebook, they, you know, take it a step further and they encrypt the whole thing. So now we can't even see. And then you got to get a warrant or you got to go in there and really dive into what they're doing to actually see what they're collecting. So it's just, it's this constant battle and it becomes more and more of a headache for sure. So, um, yeah, that's, that's going to be a very, I think a very big headache for regulators because they don't have really any insight into what's being collected if that's, you know, happening. So, and then as as far as a consumer, it's like, then I really don't have any control you know, because I don't know what you're collecting on me. So very interesting. So that is the last article for this week. Again, this was your threat Intel briefing for July 17th, 2022 through July 23rd, 2022. This is for cybersecurity TLDR. I am your host, John Good. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to leave a like and subscribe to the channel and hit the bell icon so you don't miss future content. Also, make sure you leave me a comment. Let me know how you're enjoying these. And then uh, if you're listening on podcasting platform, because remember, we are available on podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and uh, also leave us a review. And keep listening, keep watching. And uh, until next time, I will uh, see you later.